Produced at the studios of KBOO Radio in Portland, Oregon, this is Prison Pipeline. I'm Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline presents a unique perspective of the criminal justice system, addressing the root causes of crime and broadening understanding of the institution of incarceration. We seek to promote awareness and activism in order to foster a safe, healthy, and just society. On Monday, January 22nd, RTI International hosted a research symposium on Measure 110, the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act, online and in Salem. There were a lot of great speakers, some excellent presentations. Host Miley McDonald, Ph.D., is a senior research sociologist who directs RTI's Center for Forensic Science Advancement and Application. She's project director for the Drug Enforcement Administration's National Forensic Laboratory Information System and for the Bureau of Justice Statistics Census of Medical Examiner and Coroner Offices. She spoke on the law enforcement panel. Hi, everyone. I'm Hope, um, and I'm really excited to be here. And I just wanted to recognize um, my co-authors, on the Measure 110 evaluation. Um, those who are listed on the slide, but also many of whom um, are not listed on the slide, but contributed in many ways to this evaluation, which is massive. One of the things that um, I wanted to revisit was the um, survey that um, you got a, a peek of what um, this survey provided in terms of information about what people who are using drugs um, told us about substance use um, from Morgan's um, uh, presentation earlier, and then Esther provided some more context about homelessness. Um, for this one, I'm going to really focus on law enforcement um, and their experiences with the criminal legal system. And how did we get here? Because this evaluation is really huge. And when we started this evaluation, led by Dr. Alex Crowell, um, one of the things that we wanted to do was start collecting some information as soon as we could. Um, and we actually started some work with law enforcement because they were impacted by Measure 110. And we wanted to get a sense of what was going on in their uh, experiences with the law. So some of you may have seen this, this uh, research that we published um, a year or so ago. Um, we interviewed basically 34 people across four counties in Oregon in August of 2022, about a year after the law went into effect. Um, and what we learned from police was that they really perceived that M110 um, has no consequences. They perceived that um, police were left handcuffed is what they told us. Um, it left police with no leverage, no teeth. Um, they perceived that M110 had taken away some key investigative tools um, at their disposal for rolling people up and determining, you know, who is the, the bigger fish to catch. Um, the other thing that we heard a lot about, um, lots of big feelings about those Class E violations. Um, there was wide variation in um, how they were issued, and there was a general sentiment that the recipients didn't really um, take them seriously. And then finally, um, we learned a lot about their perceptions that crimes had increased um, because of Measure 110. So when we went into this survey um, to uh, interview people who use drugs, we were really interested in their experiences with law enforcement because we had learned what the law enforcement 
enforcement's perspective was. Um, so uh, y'all have seen the slide before, so I'm not going to linger too much on it. Um, but broadly, um, you know, this was a partnership that we um, did with Comagine Health, supported by Arnold Ventures. We surveyed 468 people across eight counties in Oregon. Um, we recruited them in collaboration with partner agencies and um, ones that provided direct services. Um, and the data are fairly recent. Y'all are getting the sneak peek. Um, we're going to try to get these into um, publications uh, in scientific journals, but this is really a first look at these. So we're really excited to um, present them to you today. Um, really quickly with demographics, you'll see that um, the 468 that we interviewed, it actually drops when you look at criminal legal system involvement. We actually had to drop it down to 464 because there were four participants who um, opted not to talk about their criminal legal system involvement with us. Um, so across those 464, the average age was 41 years. Um, you see we have a fairly diverse um, racial um, breakdown um, for this population, 64% being white, 13% being Native American or Alaska Native, 10% being Hispanic or Latinx, um, and about 7%, um, sorry, a um, little bit less um, for uh, Asians and Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders. Um, in terms of um, gender, 64% um, identified as a cisgender man. And across those eight counties, we consider um, Multnomah and Lane to be our urban counties and non-urban counties with the remainder. Um, one of the things that we were really interested in because we heard from law enforcement um, in that first year was that people were moving to Oregon to use drugs. And so we were really interested to know, well, okay, what is the knowledge about Measure 110? And what we found was that 13% of those that we interviewed um, understood that all drugs um, were, uh, cover, were decriminalized for personal amounts under Measure 110. And when you look across the drug categories, you see that less than 50% when we asked them which drugs were decriminalized, you see that the percentages are actually pretty low for them understanding that Measure 110 decriminalized these particular drugs. And in particular, I want to point out fentanyl. 7% correctly understood that Measure 110 decriminalized personal amounts of fentanyl is quite low. So this is important because it provides context for um, decisions that people might make about their use um, and really about civil liberties as we think about their um, understanding of what an interaction with law enforcement might, might yield. Um, and what we learned when we were looking through the data um, is that many of these um, sampled participants had pretty significant criminal legal system involvement. So about three in four of them had at least any criminal legal system involvement in the past year. Um, and that included two thirds having at least one law enforcement stop. Um, about a third had spent some time in jail and 27% were on some type of community um, supervision, including parole, probation, or some other type of community supervision. So all this to say this was um, pretty interesting to us because 
you know, this was just the past year. This is not talking about, you know, past two years, past three years. This is talking about just the past year. And again, this, these data were collected just last year. Um, I'm going to switch the denominator up just a little bit. So let's focus on that two-thirds that were stopped by law enforcement in the past year at least once. Um, the median for getting stopped by law enforcement for this population was three times um, in the past year um, among those with any criminal legal system involvement. So when you look at that two-thirds who had been stopped by law enforcement, we then um, asked about, well, what, what happened? And it turns out that 54% indicated that they had either been searched um, on their person, their car, their stuff. And then we asked, you know, what happened after that? And 47% indicated that um, during this um, engagement with law enforcement, their drugs were seized, which is lawful um, for law enforcement to do here, but it's still quite notable in light of uh, research. And I'll get into that at the end of the presentation. Um, going back to that 464, we were really interested to compare those that were not um, stopped by law enforcement to those um, who were. And we found that the participants who were stopped by law enforcement in the past 12 months were more likely, statistically more likely, to be slightly younger, uh, identify as a cisgender man, be in, interviewed in a non-urban county, that would be outside of Multnomah or Lane, um, be currently homeless or unstably housed, um, and just drawing attention to that, 91% versus 74%, um, or be on some type of community supervision, and that's 32% versus 14%. Um, beyond that, we were also interested, given these regional differences, or actually urban, non-urban county differences, we also ran some statistical um, analyses to determine um, law enforcement stops for those that were interviewed in urban versus non-urban counties. And we found that the participants who were in non-urban counties were statistically more likely to be stopped by law enforcement, 71% versus 57%, but less likely to be searched when stopped. However, more likely to report uh, receiving at least one drug citation if stopped and drugs were found in their possession. Um, and this is where it gets interesting. As a criminal justice researcher, um, anytime you're looking at law enforcement stops, you sort of um, imagine that there's probably going to be racial, ethnic differences that you're going to find. But here, among this 464-person um, sample of people who use drugs, we found no statistically significant differences by race or ethnicity in um, their reporting for being stopped by law enforcement. So um, all this to say, a um, few things. Um, so two years post Measure 110, um, I think we could all agree here that people are being heavily policed, people who use drugs. Um, and people who are um, having these engagements with police um, are uh, take or, or having their drugs seized from them, and that's that's a problem um, because of the harms associated with it. There were, um, I think, if you were here for panel one, you heard Dr. Del Pozo talk about research that he's involved with, where 
when police seize drugs, it disrupts the local drug market and overdoses increases. Well, we're seeing that in the non-urban counties, this practice could probably carry increased risk where we're seeing through many of the presentations today where um, resources, overdose response, and health and health treatment infrastructure could be more limited than in the urban counties. Um, and then importantly, about nine in 10 people interviewed lacked crucial knowledge about Measure 110. Um, and this has implications for understanding decision-making and their consequences of use. Um, and it points to the importance of correcting this information, um, especially in light of the fentanyl crisis that we've all been talking about today and potential civil, civil liberties concerns. Um, but on that note, um, the null finding about race, ethnicity, and police stops really points to something kind of good here, right? Because Measure 110 was enacted with this promise to help reduce um, the disparities that we're seeing. And this survey is this is preliminary, but this is um, you know showing a potential success here. So um, excited about the questions and answers later. That was Dr. Hope Smiley McDonald, Senior Research Sociologist and Director of RTI International's Center for Forensic Science Advancement and Application. She spoke January 22nd at RTI's 2024 Measure 110 Research Symposium. We'll be back with more in a moment. You're listening to Prison Pipeline. I'm your host, Doug McVeigh. 1909 Shanghai Opium Commission, 1914 Harrison Narcotics Act, 1937 Marijuana Tax Act, 1971 President Richard Nixon declares drugs public enemy number one and vows to wage a new all-out offensive, 1982 President Ronald Reagan announces new federal initiatives against drugs and organized crime, 1986 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, 1988 Anti-Drug Abuse Act, and on and on and on, 2020 Oregon voters having grown tired of more than a century of constant failure on the part of legislators and politicians voted to try something different for a change. Measure 110, the Drug Addiction Treatment and Recovery Act. Another speaker at that symposium was Morgan Godvin. She's a member of the Measure 110 Oversight and Accountability Council, also a writer, editor, drug policy expert. I spoke with her recently on Zoom. Here's part of that conversation. This, this underscores for me the fact that two things. One is the fact that decriminalizing simple possession of some drugs did not mean the decriminalization of people who use drugs, that those are different things. And, um, and the second thing is it brings into question this complaint that police are constantly making about Measure 110 preventing them from harassing people who use drugs, cops complaining about being handcuffed. Talk to me about this aspect of the research, the, um, the fact that people who use drugs are still being... Um, there's basically police are still it seem to police seem to still be enforcing these laws. Well, they're not in drug decriminalization is decriminalized, but that was actually a pretty trivial proportion of why people were coming into contact with police officers and why they were being stopped. There was a question on the survey on a scale of one to five. How much has the fact you can no longer get arrested for drug possession improved your life? five being the most, one being the least. And asking that question to dozens of people was so enlightening. Do you want to guess what they said? I'm guessing it was low. It was incredibly low, yeah. Uh, 
so many people said it didn't make a damn bit of difference in their life because they're still homeless. And what's really criminalized, we heard over and over, was homelessness. So yes, two thirds of everyone we talked to had been stopped, had had contact with the authority of the state in a very, you know, binary way. Like, hey, you, stop. An absolute tangible expression of state authority. And a fairly large proportion uh, reported being searched and having their drugs seized. And there has been a narrative. We've heard police officers say um, that, yeah, Measure 110 has handcuffed them or they don't have the same amount of tools available. But if even under decriminalization, they're still able to search that high of a percentage of drug users, I'm not sure that pans out. And then I think to some of the qualitative interviews from that same study where people were talking about their various interactions with police and getting searched. And uh, it was just really surprising to me how little people thought decriminalization even improved their lives because as long as they were still homeless, as long as they still had a warrant from three years ago, as long as they, you know, they still had a failure to appear, they still got arrested for shoplifting, you know, just drug possession was a pretty small part of the things that they were worried about getting arrested for. And it's funny because there's this notion from the other side that decriminalization, like the knowledge of decriminalization, is this huge influencing factor on people's behavior, right? This is the, like the singular aspect. This is going to make people move here or make people use drugs or, or it's just either way that, that people are considering it. It's at the top of their mind and is regularly influencing their behavior. Only 19% of people we talked to knew that fentanyl or all drugs had been decriminalized. 81% of people in Oregon didn't know, didn't know that fentanyl was decriminalized. So that notion that it's this like very heavy influence on people's lives just because they're not going to jail for drug possession when we look at those data, you know, it appears to be, that appears to not be happening. Uh, people are still very afraid of getting arrested. People are still very frequently getting stopped, searched, and arrested, even though police can't arrest them for drug possession. And, you know, of everyone we talked to, you know, 98.5% of them had been using drugs before Measure 110 went into effect for an average of 21 years. The average length of time people had been using drugs was over two decades. So, And then the, the housing one, too. You hear this. You hear this a lot. You hear it in actually every city in the country, so we're not unique with this. But wherever there's homeless people, they're not from there. They came in from somewhere else. You know, I heard that when I was in Minneapolis, sub-zero temperatures. Somebody looking at an encampment. I don't know why people would come here to be homeless. It's so cold. <laughs> you hear yourself. Um, and so this study, this survey also asked people, um, how long have you lived in Oregon? And then the next question was, how long have you lived in this area? 
And again, the average length of time our respondents lived in Oregon, two decades, 20 years. So the vast majority of them were longtime Oregonians. A solid third of them have never lived outside of the state for a single day in their life. Um, and I would like to compare that to housed residents because I think it's actually like, I think the people experiencing homelessness that we talked to were more likely to be native born Oregonians than housed people. Uh, one of the, the housing researchers said that only 50% 50, 50 of Multnomah County residents were born here and the other 50% are transplants. And if that's accurate, that means people who are homeless are more likely to be authentic Oregonians um, than housed residents, which just flies in the face of those myths that homeless people are being bust in or people are coming here for our slightly more favorable public policy or a hot meal or to do dope. Uh, nope. The vast majority of people we talk to are from here or we're from a neighboring area. Well, Portland is the metropolitan center. If you're someone who needs to use health services or some kind of social services, you know, if you're in a rural area, your options are very yeah. limited. You may need to be around Portland to access them. I mean, healthcare is an obvious one. And, you know, you're not going to get the same kind of care here that you would in, you know, in the middle of one of uh, what they, the, the health authority, the, uh, the, the um, the health authority refers to some of there's a handful of counties referred to as frontier right. counties. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you're from out there and you need health care, you ain't gonna get it as well as you would get it if you were here. I mean, that's, I mean, that's, but that's, I mean, yeah, we saw that in Medford too. People were coming in from Roseburg and uh, many other smaller towns, some of which I'd never heard of, uh, to access services in Medford, which is. An urban area in, in southern Maine. Mm. Um, it's uh, it it is maddening that I mean the the um, the data and what well, it seemed clear to me. What was your impression? Uh, the 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 re what the, the research actually shows as far as Measure One Ten. It looked like over and over the research showed that there's nothing that can be empirically verified that shows that Measure 110 is causing harm in any way, other than the uh, qualitative reports from police officers saying that Measure 110 impacted their ability to do their job. That's the only thing that can we can even vaguely remotely say that there was a negative impact negative in quotations depends on who you're talking to um but from homelessness to overdose to housing uh yeah overdose housing use behavior uh health care access all of the things no negative impact from measure 110 now did it have any positive impact we didn't see that either so essentially not saying it's not there, but I'm saying we didn't see it. Now, one of the problems, of course, one of the concerns there is that there's not really a good baseline. I mean, the the where we were prior to that, prior to Measure 110, is where, I mean, this is, I mean, part of RTI's funding or part of RTI's interest in this is because they're being funded to uh, to uh, to look. 
Yeah. I like it. So they're the- going to come back in two years and do it again. So this, for the first survey was the baseline survey. And then two years later is the, and how's it going survey. But unfortunately it doesn't look like Oregonians are going to give this measure 110 enough time to even do a very basic longitudinal study. So the other thing about that not having the baseline is we, I mean, one of the other points that was made in this and there, you know, just there was a, as, as we're recording this earlier today and yesterday, National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine had a two day conference online and in person at or online, at least on, um, on harm reduction. And that was really brilliant. It's incredible, incredible stuff. And one thing that was just one point that was made over and over is that there's no evidence to show that what we're doing works, but there is law enforcement focused prohibition drug war stuff and arresting people. There's no evidence to show that arresting people works in any way to solve any kind of drug problems. And there is evidence, quite a bit of it, to show that arresting people makes things worse. So we're just we're continu- we just we're continuing to do everywhere else in the country. They're just continuing to do the wrong thing, the stuff that yeah. doesn't work, and ignoring this being the one state that's actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the research presented at the symposium showed over and over the absence of harm, the absence of harm, the absence of harm. It did show also some harms such as how incarceration doubled the risk of overdose um, and in the qualitative, some various things, people being afraid to call 911 during an overdose, uh, some stuff around, you know, how arrest can affect pregnancy and uh, mothers with children. So measure 110, the absence of harm, incarceration, Various proven harms for decades, various studies have been showing the various aspects in which incarceration can harm, can and does harm. And so the fact that the intervention we have presently has not been shown to harm, the alternative intervention proposed has been shown to cause harm. I just... I really struggle to wrap my mind around how people could think that incarceration will give us better outcomes because people are, Oregonians are legitimately frustrated with the state of our addiction crisis, okay? They are legitimately frustrated with drug overdose rates. That's true. But this notion that somehow arresting people will improve our health outcomes, like decrease overdose rate, decrease rates of addiction. It's never been borne out by data. It's not happening in any of the other 49 states that do this. And we're talking about it as if it's, as if it's a fact, as if there was like research that says, ah, yes, incarceration does this thing, except research says everything to the contrary. And yet people are still getting up on microphones and saying <laughs> saying that, um, you know, incarceration is a pathway to recovery. And I don't quite understand it. 
I don't quite understand how we've strayed so far from the science. That was part of my conversation with Morgan Godvin. She's a writer, editor, drug policy expert, and member of the Measure 110 Oversight and Accountability Council. Find her on the web at morgangodvin.com. And for now, that's it. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to Prison Pipeline. I've been your host, Doug McVeigh. Prison Pipeline is a volunteer production for community radio and syndicated via the Pacifica Foundation Radio Network's audio port service. Please support your local community radio station. Become a member. Become a volunteer. Find this and other installments of Prison Pipeline on the web at kboo.fm slash prison pipeline. You'll also find a link there to subscribe to the Prison Pipeline podcast. Join us again next week for another edition of Prison Pipeline. For now, this is Doug McVeigh saying so long. So long. Just a soul.